that synced and ready to go. Last week, or let me say, we are coming near the end of our first quarter. Remember, the first quarter theme is We Can Trust the Bible. We're looking at some of the fundamentals in this quarter about the Bible, about God, and about the gospel. Last week, we asked the question, what is God like? And we saw that the only way to answer that question is really with the Bible itself. Looking at the world will tell you about God, but only if the Bible guides how you see the world. Otherwise, you may have a skewed picture. The Bible is itself the revelation of God to us. It, in it, it declares and demonstrates God's character and shows him to be the greatest and most worthy being of praise, even the most enjoyable being in the universe. I stressed last week that every part of the Christian life, really, and even our existence in eternity, will be ultimately about attaining one goal. Every part of the Christian life and even our experience in eternity will be about attaining one goal. What is that goal? In a sense, yes, to glorify God, but God's glory. Remember we looked at last week Exodus 34 and Moses and the glory passing by before him. What was Moses' goal that caused him to want to see God's glory or to glorify God? Yeah, her. That's right, to know him. I made the statement last week that all the Christian life is really about knowing God, and even in eternity, that's what we're going to be doing. That's why we're going to be, that's why we'll want to be in God's presence all the time, because we want to know him more. That's what Moses was after in Exodus 34. That's what Paul was after in Philippians 3.10. These two men and many others in the scriptures saw that their happiness lay in beholding the glorious character of God. So they were glad to glorify him. They were glad to obey him, work for him, study about him, preach him, and suffer for him. We saw a little bit into God's character last week. We looked at some some basic declarations of his character, attributes like his generosity, his loving kindness, his refusal to let evil go unpunished. But there's another important attribute of God that is the subject of today's lesson, and that is his triunity, or his trinity. How do we explain the trinity? We must be careful about this because many people, many Christians throughout history have tried to explain the Trinity and ended up saying something about God that is not true. We'll examine that a little bit more later on. Others, because they were not able to explain the Trinity in a way that satisfied their minds, denied that God was triune, denied even that Jesus is God. Is the Trinity biblical? If it is, how should we defend it? How should we explain it? Where do we go in the scriptures to support it? What analogies, if any, should we use in explaining it? That's what we're going to talk about today. It's all about the Trinity. We're going to look at a number of scriptural passages today, about seven. We'll also complete, we'll work with some handouts. Hopefully you received about four handouts today. I know, it's just like a cascade of handouts to you. Make sure you got those. We're going to complete a worksheet related to heresies involving the Trinity, and then we'll finish up today's lesson with some application questions. Let's pray before we go on. Oh, great Father, great triune God, thank you for being our God and revealing your character. Lord, our happiness does lay in knowing you. pray that we would know you more, that you would use this time this morning to enable us to do that. Lord, instill in us a wonder and a great love of you as the triune God. In Jesus' name, amen. The first passage we're going to look at today is actually one we looked at a little bit two weeks ago. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3. Remember, you can follow along. You should be following along in your student guidebooks. Hopefully, you brought them with you today and you did the prep work. We're going to be on page 71, taking some notes in our student guidebooks. So Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3. 
We're going to look at this scripture and a number of other scripture, scriptures to examine this question of, is the Trinity biblical, and how should we explain it? Here's the passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Some quick observations. If we look at the verbs in these three verses, there are three actions taking place in this passage. What are they? Or what's one of them? Created, right? What's another one? Hovering or moving. And then what's the third? Said or speak. Very good. Now, who does each one of those? We see the word God, but also another description. The Spirit of God. God created. The Spirit of God was hovering or moving. And then we have God said. Now, are these two different characters, or are they the same character, just talked about in different ways? We'll come back to that question later. When do these actions take place? In the beginning, but we can be more specific. With creation, what part of creation? Or the creation process? This is day one, day one of creation. Who actually is doing the creation here? God, right? It said God created and God spoke. But we also have the Spirit of God described as moving or hovering. It's there as well. And when we looked at this passage before, we noted that this passage shows us some pretty important truths. God exists, God is creator. But we also learned something about the nature of God in this passage. We learned that God has a what? A spirit, because the spirit of God is here. It is hovering or moving over the waters, the unformed um, waters of creation. So there, this is important to note. Genesis 1, 1 to 3 says there is such a thing as the spirit of God. And that spirit was present at creation. Now let's look at some parallel passages. Learn more about who was actually there at creation. I told you we're going to be kind of moving through a number of scriptures today. Turn over to Psalm 33.6 for a moment. Psalm 33.6. Here's the verse. By the word of the Lord... The heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. What similarities do we see in this passage to what we just read in Genesis 1? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Are there any parallels? Very good, Amy. So we see that it's not simply the declaration that God created, but it says, by the word of the Lord he created. And we saw in Genesis 1-3, it said, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So there's an emphasis on the word causing creation. But there's another parallel here, and there's another connection that might be a little bit more subtle. It's based on the language used in both of these verses. The word spirit, in the phrase spirit of God in Genesis 1-2, is the same word for breath here in Psalm 33.6. It is the Hebrew word ruach. So breath of his mouth actually is likely another reference to the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2. It's the same word. So we see two connections from Psalm 33.6. Creation happened. The psalmist brings back to mind. Creation happened by the word and the Spirit of God, with the breath of God. One other passage to look at in parallel to these. Turn now to the New Testament, John chapter 1. We're going to look at John 1, verses 1 to 5. You might be familiar with this passage, but of course very important for the discussion we have today. Here's John 1. Verses 1 to 5. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. How is this passage similar to what we read in Genesis 1, 1 to 3 in Psalm 33, 6? What do they all have in common? Roy. You are, you are right. It shows that God is creator. It shows that Christ is creator, but let's fill in that connection a little bit. How can we say that Christ is creator? Well, there's something, there's a, there's a description here about how creation happened that's, that also appears in the other two passages. Yeah. Okay, yes, Roy, the word, right? We saw in Genesis 1-3, God spoke, he used words, and it came into being. Psalm 33-6, it says, by the word of the Lord the heaven was made. And now here in John 1-5, we hear Again, it was the Word that caused creation to happen. All things came into being through the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But, as you pointed out, Roy, in the context of John here, in chapter 1, we can more specifically identify who or what the Word is. And it is Jesus. The Word from John, the Word here in John is the Word incarnate. Jesus, the Son of God. So let's bring these thoughts together. Psalm, or John 1, 1 to 5, Jesus the incarnate word created everything in the universe. None of these verses have said that God is a trinity. And yet we see from these passages that three persons were involved in creation. We have God, the Spirit of God, which we can identify as the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God incarnate. That is Jesus. All said to be there at creation. All said to be involved in creation. Yes, Amy. So what if the okay, let me let me repeat your question for the sake of the recording. What if somebody says that all these descriptions that we're seeing are just synonyms for one another? Well, let me fill in some more verses. But I think very, it would be hard to get around what John 1, 1 to 5 says specifically, and that it says the Word was with God and the Word was God, and then we see here that the Word was identified as Jesus, is identified as the Son of God. I'll fill in that argument a little bit more in just a moment, but that is a very important question, Amy. Are, could these just be synonyms for the same person? Let me look at another passage that's going to complicate things a little bit. We have these three persons, or three descriptions of things or people also involved in creation with God. But Isaiah is going to complicate our understanding a little bit. Turn over to Isaiah 44. The Spirit of God was there at creation. The Word incarnate was there at creation. God was there at creation, all involved in creation. But then we hear this from Isaiah 44, verses 23 to 26. It's a little bit bigger section than what's in your workbook. A couple more verses. Let me read this section. And we'll make some observations on it. Starting in verse 23. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back, and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant, and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. 
and I will raise up her ruins again. Again, we're looking at a number of verses today, so not quite as much time to unpack, but some quick observations and interpretive questions. This is, you may have noted, Hebrew poetry. We see some figurative language, especially in verse 23. The earth and sky cannot literally shout or pour forth praise, but they are figuratively called to rejoice. Why? What is the reason the author calls upon creation to shout or rejoice? Khalif. Very good. It's all about this thing that God has done. It's in the past tense here, but it's actually something he promises to do. God has redeemed Israel. That's the reason why creation should rejoice. God has redeemed Israel. As part of redeeming Israel, what does God specifically promise Israel in verse 26? What will happen for Judah? That's right. It will be rebuilt. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be judged. But it will be rebuilt. God has redeemed Israel. And creation is called upon to praise because of that. Now, an assurance of this promised redemption of Israel, to show that it really is real, that they can trust it, God, through Isaiah, reminds his listeners of a few facts. In verses 24 to 25, what truth does God remind Israel of? Yeah, Herb. That's right. He says, don't forget, I made the world. What else does he remind them? Yeah, Herb. Ah, so we're going to get to that more in just a second. But yeah, he says, I did it by myself. I didn't need help. I did it all alone. God even says, I'm still responsible for making everything in the world. Um, that's where he says in verse 24, the one who formed you from the womb. I am the maker of all things. So I created, I'm still making everything. I made you. And then in verses 25, in the beginning of 26, what else does God remind them of? All this is about their ability to trust them. And he presents a contrast. He says, those who don't follow after me, they make prophecies, they make predictions. They, they think that they have knowledge, these diviners. But I turn that into foolishness. They don't follow after me. Their words are confounded. But I confirm the word of my servants. And you have a servant speaking to you now through Isaiah. It will happen. So thank you. Thank you for making those observations. But to get back to what Herb said, God's reminder about creation has something very poignant, especially in light of the verses that we just looked at, that said that there were other beings involved with creation. God claims here that he was by himself. No one helped him with creation. He did it all alone. He says it three times. I am the maker of all things. I did it by myself. I did it all alone. So how, how do we reconcile these verses with what we just examined? Those verses that clearly show that the Spirit of God was there and that the Word of God was there, separate beings from God. They were there and they were involved with creation. Well, God cannot lie. Scripture cannot be broken. So there must be some way to unite these things together. And that, that way, for multiple persons to be involved in creation and yet have only one God doing it, is 
the concept of Trinity. The idea of one God, but three persons, all of them being God. This is the only way to reconcile these passages and two others I'm about to mention. Turn to Colossians. Yes. No, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks, thanks, Brian. Got to be careful about the word being. He's totally right. It's one God, one being, but three persons. Okay. Now let's move over to Colossians. Look at Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. where we're going to get another claim of exclusive work in creation. This is Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is someone claiming to have done all of creation by himself, just like Isaiah 44. But who is the he of verse 15? It's Christ. We go back to verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. This is talking about the Son of God. This is talking about Christ. He's the one who did all of creation by himself. Jesus, the Son of God, is said to be creator. Nothing was made unless the Son made it. One other verse to consider right now. Look at Psalm 104. Where again, we're going to be told that someone else was involved in creation or is involved in creation. Psalm 104, verse 30. Here's the verse. Actually, let me give you a little bit of context. Verse 24 says, O Lord, how many of your works in wisdom you have made them all, and talks about the different creations that God has made. And then we get this in verse 30. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So this is pretty plain. What does God send forth to accomplish the creation of living things? His spirit. His spirit. So once again, how can we tie all these things together? God, the Spirit, and the Son, they're all involved in creation. Even the Son is said to exclusively created everything. But God, in Isaiah, also said that he himself created everything. The only way to unite these together is the Trinity. There's one God, one being, and yet three persons. So that you can, exclusively, you can say that God exclusively created, and yet the Spirit and the Son were there, and they were also exclusively creating. As Brian mentioned, the persons of God are distinct. The Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Spirit, nor is the Spirit the Father. And yet, they are God. Each of them is God, the one God. When it came to creation, God the Father commanded, the Son and the Spirit 
accomplished the Father's commandment. Different roles, different persons, yet united in one God, doing creation all by himself. Yes, Roy. Thank you for those observations, Roy. Let me just repeat that for the sake of the recording. That we see even more language pointing us towards the Trinity in Genesis 1, where it says that God created. It is the plural. It is a plural word for God. And then in Genesis 1.26, where it says, let us make man in our image. Once again, we have that plural. So that singular and plural still being combined, the only way to make sense of that, the only way to unite those truths so they don't contradict is the idea of Trinity. What we've done here, briefly at the start of the class, is to build up an argument for the Trinity from the scriptures simply based on the claims of creation. That you have multiple persons claiming to have exclusively created and yet it can only have been one God who created. But there are, of course, many other ways to show the Trinity from the scriptures. There are passages that describe the worship of God's different persons, but also passages that demand that you only worship the one true God. There are passages that describe all three persons, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father, as eternal, always existing. There are passages that attribute the resurrection of Jesus to the different persons, and more. Really, the word Trinity, even though it doesn't appear in the Bible, is not necessary because the concept is plain when you examine the Bible as a whole and compare Scripture with Scripture. I'll say that again because I think it's a good way to sum up what we're talking about so far. Even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, the concept is plain when you examine the whole Bible and compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, someone might come along and say, well, you're right, there are three persons in God, but God's only one person at a time. That's how God can be three people in one. He's just really good at changing his costume. Well, what scripture can we go to to show that such a concept is clearly inaccurate? Yes, Steve? I think that's the best, most direct place to go. So let's go there. There are a couple parallel passages in the Gospels, but we're going to look at Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. Again, this should be very plain. Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How do we see the three persons of the Trinity represented here? They're all acting, right? What do we see each one doing? The Father? What does he do? Very good. The Father speaks from heaven, confirms this is his beloved Son. The Spirit descends on the Son in the form of a dove, like a dove. And then the Son is there being baptized. Impossible for them to all be one person, just in a different form at a different time. They're all there together. 
Now, by itself, this passage doesn't prove the Trinity. In fact, this might lead someone to think that God is, or that there are three gods, that, there's, that the Bible proclaims a tritheism. But the passage does show us that the persons of the Godhead exist together. They are separate, even though they are also one. But as I said, when we combine this passage with the others in Scripture, an accurate picture of the Trinitarian relationship within the Godhead emerges clearly. Yes? <laughs> yeah, can go ahead. Right. We have to be really careful when we talk about, all right, how do you make sense of this trinity? It seems to, or it is biblical, we see that in the Bible, but how exactly does that relationship fit together? In a moment, we're going to clarify that by looking at what are some heretical things about God. And we also have a little diagram that's one of your handouts today. But I think one of the clearest ways to say it is that they are distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, etc. And yet... You can go to any one of those and say, He is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And there have been some who have tried to add more to that, and they ended up saying things that are untrue about God. We're going to examine that more in just a second. Maybe that will help clarify it just a little bit more. But that's a very important question. What do we actually mean by this trinity? When we examine the scripture as a whole, or actually, let me let me pause there. Other questions? Yeah, Khalif. If I were not a Christian, I wouldn't say this just shows that the Bible has contradictions and that the Bible is subject to error because one writer writes about God in one way and another writer writes about God in a different way. So the Trinity is just our way of trying to pretend that there's not contradictions. Hmm. Respond to that comment. That's, a, that's a, I think, a good one to ask, and let me just repeat it. Some might use the concept of Trinity to explain away Christianity. Say, oh, you're just coming up with a rescuing device. You, this is a, actually an example of contradictions in the Bible, but you're not, you're not seeing it that way. I think perhaps there's a lot that could be said in response to that, but at the very basic level, the Bible, as we've said so far in this course, it shows itself to be true. When God opens your eyes using the scriptures, you know that it is true. And so even the concept of Trinity, as perhaps difficult for the human mind to um, clarify to the level that maybe the human mind wants, it's something that we, that we do believe that we do understand, that we do recognize is true because the Spirit is opening our eyes to it. So I'm sure people might use that as they might use any part of the Scriptures to say, oh, see, here's why I can't believe in God. But the fact of the matter is that God actually uses the Scripture, even the declarations about the Trinity, to show people that it is true. What were you going to say, Herb? Yeah, I think that's a really valuable point as well, and I should, I should make that clear as well. That when someone says that there's a contradiction or they want to use that as an excuse to deny the Bible, we have to show them that it isn't. And I think even with the limited sampling that we've done this morning, we can do that. We can say that I, I see your objection, but it actually it's groundless. And let me show you why. The, the Bible is consistent in the way that it talks about the Trinity. As difficult as it is for our, perhaps, uh, to accept in certain ways for our minds, it's consistent, and it must be this way. 
Uh, Richard. Certainly, uh, let me let me repeat your comment. Could we say that it's just a paradox, and that that's that's something that we see in the Bible that doesn't make something untrue? That does bring to my mind that in any declaration of the scriptures, we are going to encounter certain things that they they may seem like a contradiction, but they're actually two things that are true at the same time. Like Jesus is totally God, and Jesus is totally man. Now, someone could say, ah, see, this is another way that your Bible is just showing contradictions. We say, no, this is actually what the Bible plainly declares, and it must be this way. So I think you're right. If someone, we're, we're certainly going to encounter a number of truths in the Bible. Anytime you're interacting with God, or you're interacting with God and man at the same time, you're going to have things that seem contradictory, but are actually consistent and plain in the scriptures. And as those who give a reasoned defense of the faith, we want to be able to show that to people. But only God can open their eyes to it. So I'm sure some could say, oh, you didn't explain that well enough, or no, I don't believe your explanation, but God has to open their eyes to it. Let me move on. If you have other questions, please hold them till the end. When we examine the scriptures as a whole, we do see that the Trinity is real, that God is one being in three persons. But when we rely too much on human logic to make sense of the Trinity, but when we don't examine the scriptures as a whole, we fall into error. And this is what I want to talk about next. We're going to take a look at some errors involving the Trinity that have appeared in church history. And then discuss how those errors have reappeared or do reappear in our present day. Before we do that, though, let me say two things. First, I want to direct you to the handout that says that God is triune. You should have gotten four handouts today. One entitled, God is Triune. This is a quick reference sheet that you should keep in your Bibles. It summarizes many different passages that show that God is indeed triune, that he is three in one. I'm not going to go over that, but that is a resource for you. Second, please take out the handout entitled The Athanasian Creed. Looks like this. We're going to use this for an activity, but before that, who was, if some of you remember from our church history class, who was Athanasius? Anyone remember? Athanasius is an early church father, particularly important for his strong defense and fighting for the Trinity. He was a deacon in Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt, later a bishop, he fought against a certain heresy. Arianism, that's right. He fought against Arius and Arianism. Athanasius was instrumental in the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. And perhaps you remember the phrase that's attributed to Athanasius, Athanasius contramundum, meaning Athanasius against the world. He was, in many ways, alone in his standing on Scripture at times, exiled from the Roman Empire multiple times by Christian emperors, but he would not give in to the spreading heresy that was Arianism, that Jesus was just a created being, and that he was not God himself. Now, this creed, the Athanasian Creed, wasn't actually written by Athanasius. It actually appeared more than a century after Athanasius lived and died. This creed is about from 500 A.D., but those who wrote the creed, they named it after, after Athanasius in honor of him. This document is a careful summary of the doctrine of the Trinity put together by church fathers after five centuries of dealing with different heretical movements. It therefore serves as a good measuring rod for spotting heretical ideas or statements about the Trinity. It was useful then, in 500 AD, and it's still useful today. That's why I have brought it before you. The orthodox position of the Catholic Church, Catholic using the sense that this creed does, that is the universal church, not the Roman Catholic Church, the true church. The orthodox position has been clear since the time of the apostles. 
I don't want you to think, oh, 500 is when they finally figured out that eternity is real. No, it's always been the biblical and orthodox position. That's why Tertullian, you may remember him, in the 200s was clearly asserting the Trinity. He actually coined the term. That's why you have Athanasius in the 300s confidently battling against the heresy. But savage wolves did come inside the church in the early centuries, and they did lead many astray, especially when it came to the Trinity. Men of God had to contend for the faith vigorously, and this creed is an example of that faithful warfare. This creed is not inspired. It's not written with the breath of God, but it is based on the scripture. It is subject to scripture. Only the Bible is perfect. Now, what are you going to do with this? This creed is a bit long. I'm not going to read it right now, but you're going to read it, and you're going to use it as part of filling out and answering the questions on a third handout, the Trinitarian heresies. So please take, please take that one out. This worksheet summarizes six false ideas regarding God and the Trinity. Now, I'm going to give you about 10 minutes right now. What I want you to do, either by yourself or with those who are around you, read through the six different heresies on this sheet, and then respond to the heresies by citing a relevant section of the Athanasian Creed that contradicts the heresy. No, this can't be true because the Creed shows right here that you are, you are off. This is not orthodox according to the scriptures. Furthermore, since we want our defense of the Trinity or of anything scriptural to rest on scripture itself, find a Bible verse reference that also shows the heresy to be indeed heresy. So you'll write down a scripture reference. You'll also cite a section of the Athanasian Creed. And then, if you're able, note any modern religious movement or cult that embraces any Christian movement, quote Christian, that embraces the heresy mentioned. Once you've completed it, just look up. We'll go over the answers once everyone is finished or after 10 minutes go by. If you want to read the creed first and then read the heresies, that's fine. If you want to read the heresies first and then the creed, that's fine. And as I said, feel free to work with those around you. Questions about what you're going to do? Okay, take 10 minutes. Please look up when you're finished. Oh, they, they would agree with that as well. I think the part of the, the creed that's mentioned twice and that, that explicitly denies Sabellianism we get in paragraph one where it says, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. To confound the persons, is what Brian mentioned before, would be to say that they're the same. He says, no, we don't confound the persons. So there would be the part of the creed that, that denies Sabellianism. But we should know the biblical reference. Where can we go in the Bible to disprove this? Go ahead and shout it out. one we looked at. Very good, Michelle. Matthew 3, 13 to 17, or one of the parallel passages that describe Jesus' baptism. Does this exist today? Yes. What form? Or, or what's an example? I'm not, not familiar with T.D. Jake specifically, but that, that would make sense from what I've heard about him. Oneness Pentecostal movement, or I think also the Jesus-only movement. They would only hold to one person of the Trinity at a time. So, still exists. All right, Arianism. We already mentioned this one. Where can we go in the creed to disprove it? Herb. Very good. So, Arianism specifically says that, Arian, that Jesus was created. So, any part of this, the creed that shows that the Son was uncreated or that he's eternal would go against Arianism. Where can we go in the Bible to show that the Son was uncreated or that he is God? Yeah. Yeah, where's that? Very good. John 1, 1 to 5, another great use of the passage we looked at. Modern example? Jehovah Witnesses, specifically, yes. They, they believe that Jesus is created. He's a created being. Subordinationism. Where can we go in the creed? Eric. Right. I'm, I'm looking at specifically at paragraph 2. The Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. 
So none of the, these divine beings are lesser than the other. They're, not, not, they're one being. None has a glory less than the other. We're even going to the Bible to show this. That Jesus has the same glory as the Father. Or what were you going to say, Amy? Okay. I think you'd have to explain that. But yeah, he did not consider equality of God a thing to be grasped. So he had the right to it, but he divested himself of that. I heard another reference. Ah, very good. Okay, so those statements in John where Jesus clearly shows his deity. Or you can think of Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, where in verse 3 it says, He is the radiance of his glory, that is God, the exact representation of his nature. So they have the same glory. Does this exist today? You might not be familiar with this, but it does. Some Unitarians would ascribe to subordinationism. Actually, the next three are all going to appear in the Unitarian movement. Adoptionism. Where in the creed can we go? Um, yeah, hang on to it for one second. Yeah. Okay, I think that has something to do with the answer. Someone might say, oh, well, Jesus, he gained that. He didn't always have that. But we know that's not true. Where does it say that? Where can we go to in the creed to show that he was not an ordinary man until gaining this glory? Eric. Okay. I'm not sure which specific paragraph, but... Okay, yeah, the second to last paragraph. Perfect God and perfect man. Um, we can also go to what we already looked at. The Son is uncreated, paragraph 3. The Son is eternal, paragraph 4. And we can use the same Bible reference that we referred to before. John 1, 1 to 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God. Some Unitarians would hold to adoptionism as well. And then we have Unitarianism itself, just for the sake of time, uh, I'm filling the answers here. Where can we go to in the creed? Well, they say that there is no distinct persons. Well, paragraph two. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Spirit. It says that there, those are the three persons. We again can, um, we can go to Matthew 3 or John 1 to show that you have multiple persons existing at the same time. And this would be what many Unitarians believe. And then finally, tritheism or polytheism. There are th actually three different gods. Well, paragraph 6 in the Creed says, So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. And you probably know some Bible references. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, is one. Exodus 20, 2 to 5, in the Ten Commandments, he says, You will have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. Are there any Christian movements that believe in tritheism? Not that I know of, but it is a frequent accusation against Christians. Jews, Muslims, Unitarians will say, you actually believe in three gods. Say, no, no, we don't. And let me show you that the Bible itself shows that we don't believe that. <clears throat> so, when it comes to so you see some examples here of aberrations when it comes to describing or believing in the Trinity. We want to stay away from those things, and the creed is a helpful way to do that. I hope that you'll read through the whole thing because it might, or it will serve, I think, as a check to your own understanding of the Trinity. When it comes to the Trinity and defending its orthodoxy, we stand in a long line of faithful believers, many of whom have encountered the same basic attacks against the Trinity that we still do today. We've looked at the support for the Trinity in the Bible. We've examined erroneous understandings of the Trinity and how to respond to them. Let me summarize succinctly why we believe that the Trinity is biblical in a small outline, an argument. This is what we basically articulated today. There is only one God. It's clear from the Bible. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all identified in the Scriptures as God. Also, plain. These three each relate to one another and to the world as distinct persons. Therefore, the one true God of the Bible has revealed himself to exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or in other words, in the Trinity. You have one other handout today, and I think it's a probably one of the most useful visuals we have. Take that out real quick. The Trinity Shield, as it's sometimes called. When it comes to using analogies for explaining the Trinity, we must understand that all of them will fall short. All of them will not completely illustrate the Trinity. That doesn't mean we can't use the analogies, but it doesn't mean we have to be very careful when we explain it. For example, if we say, oh, you can, water is like the Trinity. There's ice and vapor and liquid, but it's all one substance. Well, if you don't explain that carefully, you may be articulating modalism, which we just looked at, because water can't exist in more than one state at a time, except in one specific circumstance called the triple point, but that's something else. <clears throat> we just remember, we do need to remember that when we explain analogies for the Trinity, we have to be very careful and ultimately make clear that there's nothing quite like the Trinity in the universe. But the Bible does clearly declare it. We're out of time for today. There are two application questions in your workbooks that I hope that you will take time to consider and answer on your own. This is an important, the first question, why is it important to have a proper understanding of the Trinity? I think part of it is salvific. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you don't believe in Jesus. Also, it's uh, God's glory at stake. Your enjoyment is at stake because it's about knowing God. And it's also very instructive. God is relational. God is a trinity. That's instructive to us. But more that you can explore on your own with that question. Don't forget the memory verse. A couple more weeks of this one. Psalm 119, 89 to 90. I hope that you will make the effort to memorize that. If you have other questions, see me afterwards. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. Thank you for revealing yourself. You are wondrous, God. We thank you for enabling us to understand because you've written it down in the scriptures. And yet, God, there's it is so unlike anything that we know. You are great, God. You are worthy of all praise. Thank you for being a trinity. Thank you for being... perfect in your own nature and in the revelation that you've given us. I pray that you would bless the rest of the service today. In Jesus' name, amen.